Hi, I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. Welcome to the Kidney Cast. This is our podcast where I talk to Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and the various other health and medical situations he's found himself over the years. Last episode was our first episode. We gave introductory information. We kind of went over the bones of Ari's biography. This episode, we are going to talk about growing up with Alports we. and <laughs> Ari's early experiences with the disease, everything up till the first transplant. So the first 18 years of Ari's life, it should go by in a flash. This will be one of our shortest podcasts. No problem at all. So before we get into kidney and Alport specific type discussion, okay, can you tell me just a little bit about the biographical details of this era of your life, where you were born, where you moved to and lived? Okay. From the beginning. Yep. Um, uh, let's see. I was born in 1977, um, at the end of April. My parents are teachers and they wanted to travel the world before they had kids, started a family. And so they signed on to this program whereby they could teach for two years in uh, various countries. I think there's lots and lots of these programs now, but the one that they signed up for was, um, in American Samoa, which is an American territory. It's roughly halfway between Hawaii and Australia. It's way, way down there. And the other island there is Western Samoa, which is its own sovereign country. But it's a teeny tiny little island. And they were part of the high school English department. So I was born there in the tropics. And I, I think I mentioned something in the last episode about being born with or having Giardia as a very small baby, because perhaps supposedly I was um, sucking on coral. And now it makes more sense, perhaps, why I had coral to put in my mouth as a baby, because I was in the tropics. My parents actually re-upped after two years, so they were there for four years. We moved when I was, I think, about a year and a half old to a whole different place. Uh, my father had a choice, I think, between going to, I want to say Tehran, or Alaska. And I don't remember why they chose to go to Alaska, but it was fortunate because this was in 1979, right before there was a big you know, thing in Iran. <laughs> so uh, we were in Alaska for a year or two, and then we moved to California briefly for, it was I don't remember if it was a summer or a year. I was very, very little. Uh, how old were you at this point? Three, when we left Alaska and moved to California. Like I said, I think we spent like a summer to six months in California before moving to Oregon, Beaverton slash Portland area. You live in Oregon up until the point you live to, you leave for college. Right. Yeah. So let's go back to Samoa, I guess. Okay. Um, what were the very first signs that you had a genetic disease? What were the first signs of Alport syndrome in your life? And this is probably maybe pre-memory for you. So, <laughs> Yeah, I was just thinking the person to ask about that would be my mother or my father. And I... I think that there were no signs or symptoms in Samoa. If I remember correctly, the first time they started noticing something would have been in Alaska at the earliest and then more likely once we were in Oregon. And it was um, hematuria, um, which is blood in the urine. Uh, my pee looked a little different than they thought it should. Uh, it's... A really common thing with kidney disease, you know, your kidneys are supposed to filter your blood uh, and then produce it to urine. But when kidneys don't work well, one of the things that happens is they just actually let some blood through wholesale instead of just taking stuff, not wholesale, but a little bit. And so the urine becomes a little bit of urine, a little bit of blood. It's not painful. It's not uncomfortable. It's a really tiny amount. But they noticed something and went to see a doctor, I believe. And do you know how that progressed to a diagnosis? When, when were you ultimately diagnosed or what were the early things that were discussed first? I don't know specifically, but they were starting to notice that it wasn't just, oh, he's sick and so his urine is darker or something else with me, that it was a more ongoing, consistent thing and... 
I think there were some blood tests that they had done that maybe showed a little bit of abnormality. Um, I really could not begin to say because this was a very long time ago and, you know, I wasn't part of those discussions. But they decided to give me a biopsy. And uh, this was when you were four years old? Yeah, and I said give me a bio biopsy, but they wanted to biopsy one of my kidneys uh, when I was four. Do you remember this? A little bit. I remember being in the hospital for a couple of days. Just in case anybody in our audience doesn't know, what's a biopsy? So a biopsy is when you take a tissue sample from a portion of the body or from something so that you can examine it under a microscope. Um, nowadays, most biopsies would be done as a what's called a needle biopsy. Um, it sounds nicer than it is because I've had a number of those. Um, the needle is quite large, but... It's not particularly invasive. It's an outpatient procedure. They sort of numb the area. They clean it off. Um, and then they put a very, very, very large needle, probably the size of, um, well, I, I don't know. The, the image that's always in my head is at the end of uh, The Rock when Nicolas Cage has to stab <laughs> himself in the heart. Uh, it's a, a device that looks kind of like that. It's big and they, you know, insert it very carefully and then, and are able to look in using, um, ultrasound and then they just take a little tissue sample and you don't really feel it and then they can look at it under a microscope. But in 1981, when I was four, they didn't have that yet or they didn't do it or it was easier to do this or I think they just didn't have it yet. So it was an inpatient procedure. I was in the hospital for a day or maybe two. I don't think it was more than two days. Could have been three, but I don't know. They did a small incision. I still have the scar on my, my right side. Went in to look at the kidney and took a very, very small little sample. I, I'm going to assume with a scalpel that they, or maybe several small samples that they could look at under the microscope. And my main memories of that, like, I kind of have a little bit of OR memories, like mm -hmm. maybe being wheeled in or something, but it's also possible I've constructed that because I've been in surgery yeah. many times. Uh, I do remember waking up in a recovery room, which was very strange, because it's obviously my first time. Waking up in a recovery room is always strange because you come out of nothingness into a place you do not expect to be, mm -hmm. uh, that, that you've never seen before. It's You know, if you, you go to a hotel or you're staying at a friend's house or something, like you go to sleep in a place that you, maybe you're not familiar with, but then you wake up in that same place. Uh, but when you wake up from surgery, you're usually in a room that you've never been in before because they have wheeled you somewhere. Right. And it's odd. And as a little kid, that was very, very disorienting. So I remember that a little bit. And then I remember being in a hospital room. I remember there was I, maybe there was some kind of pudding or something that I received. And I was kind of excited about that. But mostly I was like tired and in pain. And um, I felt like people around me were like, look, you're in the hospital. You get pudding. That's the exciting part about being in the hospital. Oh, and not I even ice cream? Maybe there was ice cream. Oh, man. There was, there was something. Well, ice cream like... is for tonsils, right? So. Yeah, but if you're a kid in the hospital and you get pudding instead of ice cream, I kind of feel like you got the, the crap end of that deal. Well, there are ways in which I got screwed worse than that, I think, when it comes to kidney stuff. But also then my parents wanted to kind of, I think, make it not terrible. And I was super, super, super into Lego at that time. So I remember I got a very small Lego set. Very small. It's going to sound like I'm complaining about it, but I remember as a kid going, oh, a fire truck. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was, I really wanted the Star Wars stuff or a bigger set. You know, little kids are jerks. And so I was like, oh, thanks, I guess. It's like Aww. I said, I think it was a fire truck. And it was also, it was so small. It had like 18 pieces or whatever. So I just like assembled it in five minutes and went, oh, now I have a truck. Yay. Which wasn't nice of me. I don't think I complained about that at the time, but that is a big part of my memory of being in the hospital for that biopsy. Well, that's kind of how kid memories right, work. Right. So after that biopsy, yeah, I guess there's sort of this, our kid is sick right now kind of feeling, or uh -huh. I am sick right now from your perspective. And then that kind of builds to you have a illness that's going to be with you for a long time. Can you talk to me about that transition from this is a thing that's happening right now to, oh, this is a bigger thing. You know, this is actually a thing that I've never really asked my parents about, or maybe I have, but I don't feel like we've talked about it a lot because I knew very little mm -hmm. about what was going on. And it wasn't necessarily that they were keeping things from me. It was just that, you know, I was in the room for those kinds of conversations. And I'm not just talking about 
during the biopsy I'm talking about, then I had regular doctor visits that I'll, I'll talk about in just a minute, that the doctors didn't know that much about Alport syndrome. I don't remember when they said, oh, it's probably Alport's. I'm going to guess I would have, it would have been by the time I was about six. That makes sense. Or maybe even just as a result of the biopsy, they said, okay, so looks like there's a collagen four deficiency and that, oh, when we looked that up in our book, that that's this thing that was identified a long time ago by good old Dr. Alport. But they really didn't know a lot about it. So that when I was in my late teens and my kidneys were actually failing, my transplant, unbeknownst to me, but my first transplant was like a year or two away, that wasn't even a thing that I remember being on the table. Like, I wasn't completely shocked and surprised when it came time that, oh, now you need a transplant. But I had my first transplant when I was 19. And when I was 15, I'm not sure that word had even been mentioned. It's it's possible it's mentioned, but if you had said, oh, you might need a transplant at 15, actually, now that I'm remembering, I think that they did say something like, well, maybe there would be a transplant mm-hmm. in your future, but that 19 was not really anybody's estimate. Like okay. they thought it would be much later, if at all. And it was always, well, if, maybe this will happen. We don't know. So, yeah, I think that the things that both you and your parents have talked about from this era are kind of a much rosier or more optimistic picture always than the actual reality yeah. of what was happening and what was going to happen. And that kind of each new worst thing was a little bit more of a, oh, this is a surprise that it's going to get worse. Is that accurate? Yeah, and... I- I feel also like it was kind of maybe presented, and maybe that's not fair, but it was often sort of like, oh, well, this is kind of a weird coincidence is the wrong word, but oh, mm. huh, so this is happening. So I have this biopsy when I'm four, and then I think pretty much from then on, the doctors at OHSU wanted to follow me. Um, just to interrupt, OHSU is Oregon Health and Science University. Yes, it's the research hospital in Portland. I think we were either referred there because they were the research hospital or my parents took it upon themselves to say, let's go see the researchers. So once they had done that, then I had regular appointments up there, you know, in addition to whenever I got sick as a kid or whatever. I had a, a regular pediatrician. I had all those things and appointments mm-hmm. and shots and whatever that kids do, but also at least twice a year, but it was basically a, a regular biannual visit. We went up to OHSU. I guess that means actually probably they had to take me out of school for a day because they were longer visits or maybe they, they, they always try to take me after school. So maybe it was after school, but it was a little bit of a, a to do. Right. <laughs> um, because it wasn't close to where we lived and it was a long appointment every time because in addition to the regular sort of pediatrician stuff, like they would do an exam of me mm-hmm. and I'm trying to remember what it was, but it was usually like a full physical exam. And I think that they probably did some of the stuff that later became regular kidney things like checking for uh, water retention on at various points at like limbs and feet and, and stuff like that. But Right, because sort of we haven't talked about, you know, the what kidneys do <laughs> schoolhouse rock. Here's what a kidney does kind of thing. But they filter the fluid in the body. So you you take in water, it goes through your system, it gets to the kidneys, which act as a filter, and then that the the waste it goes to your bladder, you pee it out. Yeah, your your kidneys and your liver each filter your blood of toxins, different kinds of toxins. Your kidneys, they do toxins and also excess fluid. Right. So one of the easy signs that maybe something's going wrong with the kidney is you're you're retaining water. Right, exactly. Uh which I did not deal with for many, many years until many years after this. So they did a full physical. They asked usually my mom a bunch of questions. And then they also, they took blood, a lot of blood. Oh, yeah? I mean... I mean, I've seen you get blood taken now, but more than that? Uh, No, it was less than that. Like now, if I go have like a transplant panel, it's like three, four tubes of blood and that it would have been about that or maybe just two or three. There have been many, many times in my life where like, we need to take some blood and they whip out like 18 vials or something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't that. But as a little kid, kids don't give blood samples very often. Right. Um, but I did. And OHSU in the peds ward, sorry, pediatrics ward had a special thing when we had to give blood, uh, which was that you got a hero badge. And Aww. I don't know who made these, but they were all unique. 
And they were all handmade with like wow. construction paper and ribbons and stickers. And it was a big like six inch diameter award, like badge. Okay, I've never could. heard about this. Yeah, well, you didn't get to go to OHSU and get your blood taken like a hero like I did. So <laughs> some of us are just special. And you got to like choose the one. It was kind of like going to the dentist instead of, except instead of getting like a super ball, you or know, a slinky or right, or a slinky or whatever. You got a you know construction paper hero badge, which I wore proudly on my chest. And that was that's a weird thing because as a kid, sometimes you go, well, this is dumb, but I like it anyway. And mm-hmm. I definitely had both of those things. And I will say, just sort of weird factoid, two things about that. One, I continued being offered and taking the hero badge long after. <laughs> um, it was cool. You okay, know. ballpark, what age? Oh, I don't know, 8, 9, 10. Okay, I mean, that's still... 11, 12, maybe. Because okay. there's a certain point at which you switch from going to, like, pediatric nephrologists, kidney mm-hmm. doctors, to uh, adult nephrologists, which would have been when I was in junior high, high school. And that's, that's just an awkward transition, and that's when I stopped going to that place. And there was definitely a point where I said, I don't need a hero badge anymore. But there was also this point where... You know, I was 10 or 11, let's say. I I was older than I would have ordinarily taken that kind of thing. And it was like, listen, this is a pain in my butt. I I don't want to take this time away from whatever it was doing. Playing outside, doing my homework, reading the, the coolest book I was reading, practicing my instrument, doing any of a million things I would have rather been doing, hang out with friends. I guess I didn't mention that. Like any of those things, we had to like go have this stupid appointment. And then they talked to me about a bunch of stuff I don't care about. And I have to have a bunch of blood taken. So you're darn right. I'm going to take a hero badge. Yeah, you earned it. And I'm going to enjoy it. And I'm 11. I think it's stupid and I don't care because this is what I get. So uh, th- there's a hero badge. That's one sort of factoid. Another thing that I was going to say is that um, until I was at about the point where I started rejecting the said hero badges, I did not realize that other people didn't go to OHSU twice a year and have uh-huh. these long, annoying appointments because I lived in that kid bubble. And I, maybe I wasn't 12. It's possible I was eight. And I sort of offhandedly saying, uh, said to a friend or something like, oh, you know, when you go to OHSU and you have to do that like every six months or so. And they looked at me completely blankly, having not understood really any of the words I had just right. used in that sentence. Because it was just normal for me. And, it, you know, it was not right. that and a big kid a deal. assumes that yeah. my life is everyone else's life. And- Everyone's, everybody goes and does that. And Part of what makes it weird is this, or what makes that extra weird, I guess, is this third thing that I just assume was a matter of course, which is that because kidneys and urine are so closely linked, I have given many, 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 many urine samples. And the way most of us give a urine sample is they go to the doctor, doctor says, here, fill this cup up. Right. And they might give you special instructions. It might be like a clean catch or whatever. So like pee a little, then get some, then pee again or whatever. But... As a kid, I regularly, so every six months, if not more frequently, was asked to do a 24-hour urine collection. Okay, yeah, describe this. So (laughs) 24-hour urine collections, I have not done one in a long time, and I'm really glad. It's easy, but it's also not easy. So you're given a jug. A giant jug and the, give me an idea of capacity. Well, here. the form fact, I'm sh- there's a specific capacity. The form factor of these jugs has changed over the years. When I was little, it was literally like it was a plastic jug, like a milk jug. Yeah. Okay. Like it looked like that. It might have been slightly different shaped. Now the kind that you have is much more like medical looking and right. square and has things on it. Um, but I also seem to remember that the jugs I had as a child tended to be. At least I associate them with the color brown, and that might be because the pea was brown. But I think the actual jug itself might have been colored to protect it from, I don't know, sunlight or something. Or accidentally picking it up and drinking it out of the fridge. Yeah, whoopsie-daisy. Yeah, because you do, <laughs> that's the other thing. You have to re- refrigerate it. So the deal with it is they give you a jug, and every time you pee in the 24-hour period, you must go in the jug. And they're testing for volume. They're testing for sort of frequency in a way that is not exactly correct. But then they're also doing some chemical tests on the actual output. Right. So all your urine for the past 24 hours is going to be in this jug. Right. So that's weird. And I do not. Oh, I was okay. I know what I was gonna say. I said, I do not remember how I dealt with that, like going to school. And then I just realized, oh, of course I do. I had weekends. 
Of course I did. So we always did it on a weekend. Like all Saturday is pee in a jug day, I guess. Fun. No, yeah, super fun. Now, this is the thing, and I apologize if I'm being a little bit too graphic or whatever, but... How old were you when you had to do your first jug? Oh, I don't know. Let's say six. Okay. Or even five. Like, I did them regularly. Let's say see the doctor in January, do the blood tests, and maybe an in-house urine test, and then... Like the cup. Right. And then six months later, so I guess that'd be June-ish, do the full 24-hour urine thing, plus all the blood, plus everything. So it'd be like a big appointment, small appointment. Mm -hmm. But I'm also pretty sure there was a period where it was like, well, you're back here. Let's just do a 24-hour urine just in case, you know? Yeah, because it's such a riot. Such a riot. And the thing is... As a little boy, you know, I really liked um, figuring things out, putting them together, seeing how things fit together. And um, if you have a milk jug and you need to pee in it and you're a little boy, there is no reason logically, at least in my head right. as a six-year-old, to hold it away from myself. There's a hole, so I would insert myself into the tube and just go. And it makes things super easy. But then... I wish I could remember how old I was. It would have been late elementary school. The jugs started, they, they changed shape and form factor at different times. And often they came with some piece of paper that was like how to do a 24-hour urine. And I was such an old hat at these, I ignored Right, it. a veteran of 24-hour urine. Right. There's no reason for me to read instructions on how to pee in a jug because, you know, there's a jug and you pee in it. Even... You're like an Olympic-level jug peer. Well, I don't know about that, but, you know. I've been training for this all my life. I get by. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, but then I remember sort of offhandedly going, oh, you know, maybe I should read what the instructions are. And it said, no, I did one time, though. And this was a new jug, and they finally had instructions. So I checked it out, and in big, bold letters, it said, caution, jug may contain hydrochloric acid. And (laughs) I had been, you know putting my penis in the inside this jug for years and i freaked out (laughs) i remember standing in the bathroom holding this thing going well i don't think i've hurt myself before now but now what do i do like now it becomes a really tricky proposition the hole is the size of a quarter or so and i've got to get this all in there and i really have to pee i've just i waited for a while and (laughs) It terrified me. And so that made my life way harder for a couple of times. And then now the form factor is way bigger because they thought about, hey, you know, it's hard enough for boys to hit a small spot, but girls have to like sit down and, you know, they, they figure it out. So if there's hydrochloric acid for whatever that reason was, preservation or something, um, that's no longer an issue. But that was a panicky moment for me as a, as an inveterate 24 hour urinal. And this was another thing that you urineter. assumed. Just everyone in your age did. Oh yeah, that was a, that was totally another thing. I said, well, I think I remember I said to somebody one time again, pretty young, like, Ugh, aren't these a pain in the butt? Or or maybe like, oh, I can't, I can't come to your house this weekend. I have to do a twenty four hour urine. Expecting him to be like, <laughs> oh man, I know, right? It's the worst. And like, that's a definite time. Like as a child, twenty four hour urine is like three words. That what are you even talking about? So yeah. That was a thing, too. We're talking about how you are assuming that every kid goes through this. This is just what you do. You have these regular checkups. You give blood. You pee right. in jugs. So I'm curious, at what age and what was going on in your life did you transition from your conception of yourself as somebody who was doing the normal stuff and who might, you know, oh, you've been unlucky. You've been sick a little more often to, oh, I'm a person with a chronic illness. I have a, I have a serious thing going on with me. Uh, that would have been really, really late. Um we we kind of skipped the hearing problem. Oh sure, part. yeah. Tell me about that. When did you start losing your hearing? Uh that was a pretty quick transition. So again, this is going to be my not super educated knowledge of how this happens medically, but Alport syndrome is not a disease that attacks something. It's because it's a genetic problem. My body does not produce collagen 4 well. Mm-hmm. And collagen 4 again, anybody who's listening that knows this stuff better. Forgive me when I say this wrong. Collagen 4 is, I believe, present in the basal membranes of your kidneys and your ears, and there is some relationship to the eyes, which is, maybe I think, slightly different. My hearing. In third grade, when I was about eight, there were a couple, you know, in retrospect, it's always easier to see or to notice. Um, there were a couple of clues uh, 
again, looking backwards in hindsight, that, that something was going on. I was always a very um, attentive and willing student in school. I was really excited about learning. You were a big old nerd. Big old nerd. Well, small. I was very small, but, uh, yeah, but. But a big nerd in spirit. In spirit, definitely. And, you know, I'm the son of two teachers, lots of educators in my family. Education has always been very, very important to, uh, me, to all of my family members. I, I grew up wanting to be really good at school and I was pretty good at school. Um, but there were a few times in third grade where all of a sudden I was the kid causing a disruption. Um, oh no. Oh no. Uh, because I think basically I could not hear that instruction had been given and I thought we were still say in free time or something. And so I would shout something or I whatever. And it was because I didn't hear the instruction was given, but I didn't even know that I didn't hear that happened a few times. But the thing it was, it, it wasn't like I could hear perfectly and then I couldn't hear very well at all. It was a gradual transition. So, but how how fast was this gradual transition happening? I'm going to say six months to a year. Over okay. the course of third grade ish, for me, the real sharp notification that I had a hearing problem was that, as part of some negotiation that you know parents have to negotiate with kids about various things, I like didn't like going to bed. I think, and maybe I wanted to listen to music, or there was something, but they. Something like that, or I, I wanted to stay up and read, and the compromise was, because they needed the lights out, was that they got me um, not a Walkman, because obviously that would be dangerous with a cord, but this new thing that was headphones that had an integrated uh, radio. Oh, tip. So fancy. And we had made this agreement that I could listen to basically the radio and music on these headphones in bed instead of, I think, what I wanted to do, which was have a light on and keep reading until who knows when, because I would never have stopped. The thing was, um, my bedroom was at one end of the house and where my parents often were were the entirely other end of the house. And I remember very specifically one night, and it was probably happened several nights in a row, I think it did for a week maybe, where they would come in and set it up. Like my dad came in and, and set up the headphones and put them on me. And, and I would go, okay, cool. And I would listen. And then I knew where the volume knob was because he left. And I, I even probably said, oh, I can't hear it that well. And he said, no, like he checked it on his head and everything. And he said, no, this is fine. You know, stop playing around, Ari. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, but then he left and I couldn't hear it. So I started inching up the volume until I could hear it. And I think I maxed up the volume. Then it sounded about normal to right. where it should be. But it was loud enough that they could hear it at the other end of the house. And that's ridiculous. Like they're, right. they're little speakers on headphones. And so I remember specifically my dad coming in and being annoyed with me again. Like mm -hmm. you're playing this game. Stop it. Like you just need to go to sleep. Put it. And so then he turned it down and I couldn't hear it. And I said, no, I can't hear it. And he, it's, you know, you turned it off. And I, and he said, no, he didn't. And we kind of went back and forth. And there was I, several times either that night or every night for a while where it was literally like he would adjust it. He would leave. I would adjust it till I could hear. He would come back. And it was this real back and forth thing where it Ari sounds was, just phenomenally fun for a parent oh it was the most fun and you know i i was obviously being such a brat and the thing is then after this went on I, like i said I, it was about a week um and i know that my parents have said they felt really guilty about this that they thought well maybe we should have our ear, uh, his hearing checked and so they did and the audiologist was like oh he has you know really bad hearing loss. Um, it's usually classified as moderate to severe, which is serious business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's especially my hearing loss graph is especially deficient in the entire range of like the human speaking voice. So I don't hear anything as well as the average person, but the things I hear the worst are right in the middle where people talk. And they felt terrible. And so third grade, I got hearing aids. I still wear hearing aids. I've been through, I don't know, seven or eight different pairs and models now. Um, and, and you hear reasonably well with them in. You know, I, I would say you're still not perfect, not the way a perfectly ordinary person would be. But I think that especially given how unobtrusive your current hearing aids are, it would be easy for someone who knew you casually to not be aware, one, that you were wearing hearing aids or that you had a, a hearing problem. 
Right. Yeah, that's when you're wearing true. them. But yeah. when they're out, you have it's it's noticeable. It's very obvious. <laughs> yeah, it's very obvious. Even more so for me. The original question that you right. know, we kind of got started was like, when did I think of myself as a person with chronic disease? And definitely wasn't that then. Um, but having hearing aids is a really different thing for a little kid. You know, older retired people, usually that's when they start having that. It's it's very unusual for a third grader. Yeah, I suppose that's true. And part of what's strange there is that, or maybe interesting, I don't remember my parents, like it was a big deal and they were expensive and health insurance did not and still does not pay for them, right, your congressman? And so it was a big expense. It was a big to-do. Like after that initial audiology visit, then there were more. It's kind of like getting braces. It's not like you go to, you know, you go to a dentist and they say, hey, you should have your teeth straightened. And then you go to the orthodontist and they say, okay, here's some braces. Like it's five visits and then they have to adjust and then you have to keep going back. But other kids get braces. But other kids get braces. I just mean in terms of the experience of going, it's a big hassle. Same is true with hearing aids because like I saw the audiologist and then the audiologist took me to like a separate hearing aid audiologist and then we had a different appointment and something else and then they had, okay, they've actually arrived now because they had to make the molds and the molds take a long time. Molds Um, of your ears to fit. Molds of my ears to be so that the hearing aids would stay in and so the sound could be piped into my ears. All of those things are processes that require a visit that's going to require a follow-up visit. That was a big thing, and I don't even remember talking to my friends about it. And this plays into later in my life, you know, having a hearing impairment is a disability. Right. Just flat out, unquestionably, it is. And you're you're disabled, right. just flat out. And that word wasn't even used to describe me in my presence, or maybe ever, for a long, long time to the point where much, much later people were saying something about like, well, I'm really into disability awareness. Maybe you'd like to come talk. And I was like, hey, uh, back off. I'm not disabled. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, I had some, it might be unfair to call it denial, but I just didn't recognize that as a thing. It took me a long time to go, oh, this problem that I deal with all the time that requires extremely expensive technology and assistive things is a disability. Right. I think that it's We don't have a word for this, really, or if we do, I don't know it. But denial is one thing. It's sort of ignoring all the evidence and saying, no, it's not true, it's not true. But I think there's another thing about when you're living your own experience and something that is very obvious to somebody who hasn't had all the warm-up, who hasn't had the slow, gradual um, change in life circumstances. You know, on the outside, if you're just walking by, somebody can see your situation very easily for you. Yeah. But for you, you've never taken the time to go, oh, it's that thing. It's that thing I've read about. Yeah. I, I am that thing. It just never, it never felt the way that I expected that to feel when I read it. Yeah. 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 When it comes to the, the hearing was definitely a marker along the, the path to, to noticing that I had chronic disease. But I would say like, I didn't start considering that I had chronic illness and thinking about it in that way until I want to say 10th or probably even 11th grade. So high school, sophomore, junior year. Yeah. I had had some illness. I was definitely out of school more often than your average student in junior high, but especially in 10th grade and then especially, especially, especially 11th and 12th, I started being gone from school a lot, a lot. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't immediate, but, and it dif- did ramp up, but there were two factors that affected that. Um, one was I started having pretty severe headaches a lot. I, I would have said at the time constant, but it would be like, no, I have, I've had this headache for three weeks. I would take Tylenol, nothing. I would take other things, I guess, you know, Advil or, or whatever, uh, somebody would ask me to try it wouldn't make a difference. It might, well, it would make a difference, but it wouldn't make it go away. Right. And it was really, really severe. One time when um, my nephrologist said, let's try a thing. And they did an inpatient process with me. I was admitted to the hospital for the weekend and they tried giving me this IV drug where the idea was one of its side effects is it makes you extremely nauseous. And so, oh my gosh, so fun. You have no idea. The deal was they want to give you as much of it as they can without it making you throw up. So every, I want to say half hour or hour, they would give you another, not dose, but they would basically up the dosage because it all, it was still staying in my system. This is a really fun game. It was, 
I was not thrilled, but I really, I felt really terrible. It was really impacting my quality of life. It was one of a lot of different things we tried. It's probably most severe. The idea was every half hour, we give you a little bit more. And then we get to a point where either you're so nauseous that you say, please stop, or maybe you throw up. And then they back off that one step. And then they know, okay, that is the amount that we will give you however regular, what the regular thing is and see if it works. What happened was two things. First of all, after like three doses, I threw up everything I had ever eaten for the past seven lives, if that was possible, really, really badly. Nurses were fantastic, as all nurses have always been for me forever, and cleaned it up very quickly, and that was great. And then I sat there feeling headachy and still very, very nauseous. And so then they gave me another dose later, and I was unable to sleep that night because I had by far the worst headache I had ever had because the medication actually created a migraine. Oh. So I can say it was not a migraine. It was not a cluster headache. I just had these regular, very strong, ongoing, and what I started to call chronic headaches. The other factor is because I started being sick so often and having to miss school, which was a thing I'd always enjoyed and a thing that I had always done very well at, and in some ways, I felt like people were counting on me, especially because band, a school band, was very important to me by that time, as evidenced in part by the fact that I am now a music teacher right. and teach those things. I felt like I was letting a lot of people down uh, at school. And so I became, I would say, again, in retrospect, I was depressed. I don't know if it's fair to say like capital D depression with, or if I was just, I don't know, really, really bummed out all the time. But Situationally the, depressed. Situationally depressed. Thank you. But- Definitely that situation was depressing, Mm -hmm. and I was super bummed about it. And between those two things, I missed a lot of school. I think they were definitely- How much? Well, (laughs) I had to withdraw from from various classes, and I was the kind of kid who would have very obviously been placed in all the AP classes that my high school offered, which was quite a few. But my guidance counselor pretty early on said, "Uh, no, you should not be in any AP classes. I I missed a ton of class and you cannot do that for those classes. They move so fast and you have to read so much stuff that at about the semester, probably, my guidance counselor brought me in and said, you need to not take this class. And so she removed me from AP and I felt terrible and I like had failed. I had to like not take classes I wanted to take and 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 Stuff like that. And so I also had to drop a couple of classes. I, I think I, I had to finish, let's say trigonometry over the summer. And because I was doing it that way, like I barely passed when I, I had been doing just fine, if not great at it before I started being really sick in that class. So all in all, because of classes I had to not take classes I had to drop out of because by my senior year, I was missing so much class that they had arranged for me to have um, early dismissal, possibly even late arrival. And I was not taking very many classes that year um, just in order to be like kind of healthy and make it to school every day. I was roughly a year's credits worth short of graduation in 1995 when I was supposed to graduate. And, and just back up a second. Yeah. In a month of school, how many days would you miss? Well, there was at least one month when it was all of them. Okay. There were many, many times I would be gone for a week or two weeks. It was not super predictable, but it was very, very rare that I would be sick for like a day. It was far more common that I would be sick for, you know, two or three days at a minimum and then like force myself back to school for that fourth day. You know, and, for and what Thursday kind of sick are we talking about? Um, we're talking like sometimes I would go to get out of bed and I would try to stand up and I'd be very dizzy and have like that. I would wake up to a headache and I'd be dizzy and I'd wake up and I would just be like, I can't do this. And uh, there were several times where I remember like standing up and kind of literally collapsing back into bed. Mm-hmm. Not like dramatically, oh, woe is me. I, oh, I must collapse now, but like I am not steady on my feet and falling down. Like I, I never hurt myself, which is good, but uh, a lot of school at a time, always. Uh, there were, <laughs> you know, there were, there were people who started rumors, perhaps because they thought it was funny or perhaps because they actually thought it was true that 
I had died in mm-hmm. high school. That happened a couple of times because I was gone so long or or so often. Um, but yeah, it was it was just a lot of school I was missing. So then, 1995, you're supposed to graduate, but you're a year's worth of credits behind. Yeah, in, in 1995, it's June. I'm supposed to graduate. I am so sick of school, as many many seniors are, even seniors like me who had not been in that school a lot. And I'll also say, like, we tried experiments like. When you're really sick and you can't make it to school, they have things where you, they can homeschool you. They can send teachers right. who have you work through packets and stuff. They tried doing that. It didn't take. It didn't work. It wasn't effective for me. So I did not want to come back and be a super senior at no, Be- Beaverton High School. I, I assumed that there, there was a possibility of doing that. My parents really backed me up in my desire to not return, and we made a deal, basically, with the school whereby I could go to a college and take classes for credit, and then those credits could be applied for my graduation basically retroactively. They were suggesting that I go to one of the local community colleges, the Portland Community College Network, PCC. I didn't want to do that because I was um, arrogant. I, I thought, no, I'm way better than this. Despite the fact that, you know, I haven't been able to make it to school very often for a long time. I'm better than this. I'm smarter than this. I want to go to a better school. So I applied to Portland State University and ran into a wall immediately. Oh? Because I had been told, sort of reassured by my guidance counselor, that this plan would just work. I could just go to PSU and take classes, and then they would retroactively apply it. Easy, no problem. And I don't know if like she had skipped a step or just didn't think about it. I called them up or I sent in my application or something and they said, uh, you can't do this. And I said, well, why not? And I had this very circular conversation with whoever was in admissions where she said, have you graduated from high school? And I said, no, I'm doing this so I can graduate from high school. And she said, oh, that's very interesting, but have you graduated from high school? And we went around in circles like that for quite a while. Okay. And I remember being very frustrated, like, how can this person not understand my plan? But, you know, in retrospect, I understand that you can't just uh, go to a college because you want to. So what I had to do was I had to take the GED, which it's a very weird and I would argue easy test if you have gone to high school. I had gone to high school. And so, I mean, yes, I wasn't always there, but it was pretty easy. You got the gist. I got the gist. I took that test or took all the tests like in one day passed them, and then like, yay, I have a GED, cool, I have a diploma, now I can go to school and get my diploma. So then I took a full load as a music major at Portland State University for a semester. Actually, they do trimesters. So for the first trimester, second trimester, basically did that. Third trimester, my health, which had rapidly been degrading at that point, rapidly, rapidly, rapidly went further downhill. And that that year was the year that I started hearing the word transplant, not just more, but more realistically. Mm -hmm. Like, Like I said, when I was 15 or 16, the word transplant might have been mentioned, but it was something like, well, maybe when you're 20s or 30s or 40s. And I was like, eh. That'll never happen. That'll never happen because I was 16. I will never be that old. Nothing. Yeah, nothing like that would ever happen. But when I was 18, that was definitely a thing that they started talking about. And so when you say you're deteriorating and declining, what is that experience? What is is sick like? Right. So um, I'm glad you asked. So... I, I actually remember going to um, my nephrologist. This was uh, my grown-up doctor at this point. Um, no hero badges anymore. No hero badges anymore. And this was also not at OHSU anymore. I was still sort of connected with them, but mostly I had transitioned to a person who is a what's called a care nephrologist as opposed to a transplant nephrologist. So I went to see this doctor, and I was seeing him pretty regularly, and he was looking at my blood tests. And I was seeing him pretty regularly, which is not a great sign when you're seeing a specialist regularly. Regularly, once a month? Regularly. Um, I want to say initially it was probably every six months, but that year at Portland State especially, it it started being, I don't know, every three months or more often, especially that second half of the year, post-January. I was determined that once I was finished at Portland State, I was going to go live the life I'd always been planning to live. Suddenly, you'd stop being sick. Right. I would just go to the college I was going to go to. And yeah, suddenly I would magically stop being sick. And 
all along, I was getting sicker. And so you asked about what the symptoms were. Well, so, yeah, what is sick like at this stage? Right. And so the reason I, I mentioned this doctor is because I remember very clearly going to see him and it was maybe one of our first meetings or one of our first serious meetings as opposed to just, well, now I'm your doctor, where he started asking me, are you having this? Are you having this? Are you having this? He said, are you having, do you find yourself out of breath more often? And I was stunned. I was like, how do you know? <laughs> because I'd been feeling like, well, you know, I don't exercise much. I got a doctor's note, of course, to get me out of PE, to get to the the music rooms at Portland State, you had to go up a couple of flights of stairs, and I was noticing that I had to stop at every landing for a while. And I was like, this is just one flight of stairs. And I thought, well, I just, I'm just out of shape. Um, and so a doctor asked me, out of the blue, without me saying anything, are you finding yourself out of breath more often? And I said, yes, I am. And I described that to him. He said, okay. And he made a little note. He asked me if my feet were swelling, and I said no. And he checked, and they were a little bit, like around my ankles. He asked if I was ever nauseous. And I was like, well, funny you should mention that because <laughs> this happened for a year. It, was, it roughly coincides with the year that I was at Portland State. I would wake up, um, have breakfast, and then I would walk to the bus to go downtown to the university. And on my walk to the bus, which was not a very long walk, I would suddenly get nauseous and throw up. Kind of stand there, shake it off a little bit. Like throw up in the bushes? Yeah. Okay. Walking on the street through the suburban neighborhood and having thrown up, not feel particularly nauseous anymore, but having just thrown up and feeling like that and then go about my day. And every once in a while also feel nauseous and maybe throw up at other times of the day. So yeah, and I was like, oh, funny you should mention it. I have been throwing up kind of regularly. We made a little note. So it, it was things like that. It was just asking me these things that I thought, well, I've just been dealing with this. You know, I am a sick person. Again, still not quite aware, going back to that earlier question, that, oh, I have chronic illness. Right. Um, and also, I should mention that when I had the headaches, I was I saw many, many different specialists. The IV thing was one thing they tried, but I saw all kinds of things we did. You know, there was therapy. There was physical things we tried. There was all kinds of stuff. And along the way... Every single doctor, including and especially the nephrologists, the, the renal specialists, the kidney specialists, were always like, well, we know you have alpores and this can cause some stuff, but this isn't it. It's too early to cause this. And then, of course, in my 20s, after my first transplant, they were like, oh, all of that stuff, of course, that was the alport syndrome. And it was very frustrating. Of course. For, uh, for me, it was really frustrating for my family to go like, well, you, you, you told us for like five years that it couldn't be this. And it was. And the fact is, I don't know what we would have or could have done differently. Right. And I, I do want to say, you know, the story we're telling here is your story. Yeah. And there's lots of other people during the story that we're telling that are part of this. You know, this is not your parents' story or your sister's story. But having a sick kid like this or a sick sibling and especially not knowing yeah. how bad it's going to get or how far it's going to go and only kind of learning after the fact, oh, all of this stuff you experienced is part of this same root cause. Yeah. So it would have been nice to know. Yeah, and so yeah. I, I guess acknowledging that they are there too, and that that is also a very a very <laughs> big deal. They're not minor characters here. Oh, not at even all. Even if we're just telling your story right now. Right, like it, it's easy to say. Well, they were affected secondarily, but I would argue that everybody that I was related to, especially that I lived with, so my parents and my sister were affected directly by my poor health every day. Mm -hmm. Not in the same way as me, obviously, but that's not really relevant. It really impacted all of our lives a great deal. So obviously, yeah, going to all these doctors and having them say, we don't know what it is, but it's not this super obvious thing, <laughs> uh, that sucked. And it, I know it's still frustrating to, to the people, we, to my family, the people we just mentioned, and it's still frustrating to me that that's true. Although, like I said, I don't know what we could have done. Well, yeah, and that's interesting. And I, I, I guess I sympathize with them a lot because yeah. that's the position I'm in. I live with you. I am your loved one. I feel like of all the people in the world now, I'm the one besides you who gets hit with the secondary effects of oh, your yeah. illness. But I have the one advantage, which is that I enter this story way later, and they know that they, they, right. they, they have caught the suspect, it's Alport syndrome. And so I, it's very hard for me to imagine how it would be to be more in the dark and to navigate that way, because I know how frustrating and how scary sometimes, and I, you know, living with you is very happy and rewarding most of the time, but how scary and frustrating sometimes your disease can be to also have that combined with the level of uncertainty 
your family had to live with at the time, that's a big thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a huge thing. The uncertainty especially, um, where it went from being, we don't know what's causing this, we don't know if we'll get better, we don't know what, what the deal is, and you know, maybe sometime in your 30s or 40s you'll have a transplant to, you're very sick, it's this, and you're going to need a transplant soon. And so this doctor who you're doing this checklist for, he's the one to say, you're going to need a transplant soon. Yes. In fact, he said two things. He said, I think we need to start talking to OHSU again about the transplant stuff and maybe get you on the list and have that whole discussion. And he said, in the meantime, the first thing he said was, we might want to start preparing you for dialysis just in case. And we'll discuss dialysis in the next podcast. Yes. Explain how that works and what you went through with that. That'll be such a good time. Um, <laughs> It'll be more fun than doing it. Way more fun than actual dialysis. <laughs> so much more fun. Yeah, so he says at some point, let's say it's in January or so, or February, he says, just in case we might want to think about preparing Ari for dialysis. And then like a month later, he says, oh, we need to do that now. So the thing that we did to prepare me is uh, dialysis requires a large access for blood. Right, because so, this is all about filtering the blood. It's all about filtering the blood. So you need a really big thing to put really big needles in, and it's typically in the arm or the chest, and in my case, it's called a fistula. In some people, it's called a graft, and like I said, we can go into more details later, but that requires a surgery. So they did that surgery um, in April of 96. Happy th- birthday to you. Yeah, I was I was still recovering from that surgery when I had my birthday, and I was still recovering from that surgery when I went to one of the pre-transplant meetings at OHSU. That's, in fact, how we found out that I am sensitive to codeine, because they had given me Tylenol-3, and it made me super nauseous and dizzy, and because I had to, like, get up and, like, lie down and have some other, you know, you're dealing with these symptoms time, I missed enough of the meeting that we had to go to another meeting. And by meeting, I mean... When you're getting ready to be on the transplant list. What to expect when you're expecting a transplant. Yes, they require, and different hospitals, every hospital does this differently, but different hospitals have different kinds or levels of education that they want you to have. Know what you're getting into, what your responsibilities will be. And so I had to go to several of those. That, <laughs> that particular, that was the first one we went to, I think, and I believe also that's the one where we walked in. I walked in with both my parents and my sister, and the nurse coordinator who was running the session said something like, oh, I can't tell who's the patient. That's a really good sign. And that's in stark contrast to a couple months later when we were going to maybe our last one, and really just a couple of months, it was really, really obvious that I was the patient. Um, you were very sick looking, sickly. I was very sick looking. And I mean, so in addition to the symptoms I already listed, like being short of breath, which by the way is because my kidneys were not filtering enough fluid. And so fluid was gathering around, around and in my lungs and heart. I was in like early stages of congestive heart failure, which I just said, like it was just a thing that you have, but I was in the early stages of that. The nausea was, again, because my body wasn't filtering out enough toxins, and so they were making me nauseous, and it was trying to find some way to get those out. But the other thing that started happening is that I started sleeping more and more. And that had already been a thing for years, but we're talking like by the time that July 9th, 1996 rolls around, when I have my first transplant, I was sleeping roughly 20 hours a day, usually contiguously. Wow, so more than a house cat. Well, more than a house cat. And I had one at the time. And he was definitely more active than I was. (laughs) Uh, And he's pretty old by that point, too. So, yeah, I was, like, tired and nauseous and couldn't breathe and had no energy and was more likely to be asleep than awake by the time I was, like, 19. Okay, and that that'll take us into the transplant. And so we'll do we'll talk about your dialysis experience and your first transplant. And like the up. run up to de- to transplant and stuff. More, yeah, yeah, so that'll be next time. And we're actually getting pretty pretty long on time now, but there are more questions I wanted to ask you about this. So I want to go way way back, and I want you to tell me when you were a kid, what was the first thing you wanted to be when you grew up. <laughs> the first thing I was pretty serious about was astronaut. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was, it was, it's funny when I tell people that because, you know, as a little boy, all little boys want to be like a fireman, a, a policeman, and a, an astronaut. And that's not totally true, but I feel like I always have to explain, no, I 
legit wanted to be an astronaut. I really loved... You went to space camp. Stargazing, yeah. I, our local science museum space camp, which was a year... A year. That would have been amazing. Wow. Young Ari is like freaking out right now thinking about a year of space camp. Uh, Dare no. to dream. Yeah, yeah. No, not a year. A week. A week is what I meant. A mere week, uh, which was awesome. Well, it now was, it seems so short. I know, but it was it was really fantastic. I really enjoyed it. So yeah, I really wanted to be an astronaut, but that dream was, and like, uh, so I should, I should continue saying that, like, I wanted to go the route where I was going to be a pilot or a commander, which meant- You wanted meant, to go into space. I wanted to go into space. I didn't want to be a mission specialist. So boring. You wanted some two-fisted Captain Kirk action. Apparently, I did, but I didn't, uh, I hadn't seen Star Trek yet. Oh, right. At okay. that point. So I, I had done enough research at, like seven and eight that I knew that I would, I needed to go to the United States Air Force Academy in um, Colorado Springs and I needed to be amazing and I needed to go fly jets. And I, that was great because I liked Top Gun. So, you know, right. beach volleyball, win all around. No, I didn't really care about the volleyball thing. I wanted to be in a jet and I wanted to be waving at Russian guys in MIGs. And I didn't know what MIGs stood for, but boy, sounded they, great. They were bad guys and I wanted to fly an F 16. I was really into it, really, really into it. And I had a plan. I think I even wrote a letter to NASA or something, like a huge dork. <laughs> and then um, I got hearing aids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, pilots have to have 20-20 vision, and they definitely can't wear hearing aids. I mean, at the time, the issue that I was concerned about immediately was, but I'll get so much feedback from my microphones in the helmet. But oh, it was no. just like straight up, no, you can't do that. You have to... Like maybe now they would have technology that could deal with that, but they don't want to put somebody who has any kind of visual or hearing disability in a billion dollar <laughs> device that um, they can do that. So that's a long way of saying I wanted to be an astronaut when I was little. But you had to give it up. I had to give it up. So then the other thing I want you to talk to me about is music and the role that music started to play hmm. in your life because it's going to become important. It's going to be, I think that I'm spoiling a little bit, but uh -oh. music is something that is a way that you've talked about relates to your disease. And it's also going yeah. to form a sort of spine in your life. Like this is going to be your future career. It's also going to be the reason that you and I meet later. This is right. going to be the significant thing. And so. Yeah, boy, all these kinds of spoilers. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, but. How did that start to develop in your life, and how was it important to you as relates to dealing with your illness? Um, I think that in some ways, the as relates to my dealing with my illness, some of that is the kind of thing that I realized more in retrospect. But we had a piano. I think it's possible that if I had known that piano lessons were a thing that one could have, I would have asked for them. But I didn't. Somehow I didn't. And so I didn't ask. But in the bench of the piano, which was one of those kind of benches that opens up and you can have books, there were books. And I don't know where the books came from. At some point in elementary school, even before I started in band class in fifth grade, I had fooled around with the books. Because at least one of the books like walked you through learning how to read music a little bit. And oh, cool. I, was, I was very excited about it. And your average kid who was not engaged, like my mom, when she was the age that I was when I was doing this, would have been like, whatever. But I was very curious about this piano. And then there was this, all this information about this special code that taught you how to or that showed you which buttons to press on this how machine. How old are you in this story? I want to say I'm like eight. Okay. I don't remember if it's before I lose my hearing or after. I don't know. It's probably after. So maybe it's around fourth grade. But then... Then in fifth grade, they did a little assembly for us about band, and it was school band, and Mr. Clark came in and gave us this presentation, and we could play, you know, trumpet or trombone or flute or clarinet or even saxophone or drums. I came home and was like, loaded for bear. I am doing this. I want to do this. I want to do this. And then he did instrument fittings, and um, I really liked the sound of the clarinet, but Unrelated to my Alport syndrome, I had asthma as a child. And <laughs> one more thing. One more thing. <laughs> that wasn't really a big deal. I had an inhaler and really it was fine. I was a very active kid. It wasn't a big deal. But I decided that number one, as cool as the clarinet was, I had asthma and I was very worried about being able to use my air to play clarinet, which, you know, now is a as a band teacher, I know is ridiculous, but that's what I thought at the time. And also, I remembered that in general music class, 
I had felt really, really, really confident in my clapping ability. When uh-huh. we all clapped along with a song, whew, I was so good at that. <laughs> Basically, what I'm saying is I had narrowed my choice down to clarinet and percussion or drums. And based on kid logic, I chose this instrument that then, you know, took me to conservatory, take, took me to gigs, took me to all kinds of things. I got very serious about it somewhat quickly. I t- started taking private lessons in seventh grade, weekly lessons. I, I moved away from just playing like snare drum and drum set and boom chick, boom chick stuff that's sort of boring and more like basically what you need for school band and into being very interested in playing all kinds of percussion instruments, especially timpani. And then also what we would call mallet percussion, a xylophone, a marimba, a glockenspiel. And those things became a very strong constant in my life where a lot of other things changed. You know, friends came and went, especially because sometimes I was sick and wasn't fun. Um, but I was in band and I was very serious about that. And pretty quickly, I was also in the Portland Youth Philharmonic, which was a local uh, youth orchestra. And I, w- I did those rehearsals pretty much without fail, even with, when I was very sick for all of junior high, high school and um, listened to tons of classical music, uh, partly because of my hearing aids. I never really got into pop music because, because you couldn't hear lyrics. because of lyrics. Yeah, because lyrics are more of the point in and I say pop music to mean all kinds of commercial music, whatever it is, whether it's hip hop, R&B, country, it. It was anything that isn't, you know, if it was written recently, I probably wasn't listening to it. The most recent stuff I was listening to was like Aaron Copeland or Leonard Bernstein. I was just super, super into that. And I listened to that kind of music. And then when I was going in for procedures or surgery, this is, you know, pre-transplant, post-transplant today. That's the kind of stuff that I would listen to and hold on to. And I, I would also say like in... Just a, a brief anecdote to kind of wrap up what was a short question and a very long answer that I expected when I was 19 and my kidneys were failing profoundly, like I've mentioned before, I was at that point, the principal percussionist of the harmonic, their top orchestra uh, principal is the, the head player. And I, you know, worked my way up and the final concert, which we played in May. And so May, and I had my transplant in July. I was extremely sick. I was sleeping all the time. I had not been to any of my college classes in weeks. The, basically, the things I was able to do were practice, read a little bit, eat sometimes, make grunts at my family, and go to rehearsal. And that's where I f- chose to focus my effort. And so in mid to late May of 96, we gave our final concert of the year. It was my final concert as principal percussionist, final concert as a member of the orchestra because I was going to go off to... Uh, the college I got into, and we played one piece for the entire concert. It was Bruckner's Fifth Symphony, and um, I played timpani on it. It was the only percussion part. And Bruckner is—he's crazy. Uh, he, he, he thought, thought Mahler was too too subtle, yeah, too, too right. light, he not wrote, dramatic enough. Right. He wrote extremely, extremely long, intricately detailed, long symphonies and other things uh, based on like organ music because he was originally an organist and the final movement which is extremely long the the timpanist it the piece is an hour and a half long or more the timpanist rests and doesn't play for half hours at a time but still my part was four or five pages you were the timpanist here i was the timpanist the last page of my part the entire page was one very long, loud roll. I just played a continuous note really, really long and loud for an entire page. It's about five minutes or something that you do that. And this is incredibly triumphant, maybe not triumphant, but dramatic, big, extended. Did I say extended? No, it's really very extended ending. And I had slept and slept and slept and done all kinds of things. I had not, I was not well. But I was there for that, and that performance was somehow I, – I, I don't like using the term like spiritual or transformative, but it was something. It was um, a place where I was able to, I don't know, wrap myself in that experience mm-hmm. where I had not been – I hadn't been able to do anything really for a very long time well at that point. 
And I was able to do that. And I was, it energized me, not just that night when all of a sudden I couldn't sleep. I'd been sleeping for so much. I couldn't sleep because it had been so moving to me to be able to do that. And not, to, not just to be able to do that, but to do it. Doing it was great. That experience was wonderful. But for years after that, I still think of that as one of my pinnacle performances. It happened when I was 19, and I've done other things that are you know more famous or more cool or whatever since then. But it was such an important thing for me at that time to be able to still do as I was headed into <laughs> feeling even worse every day and uh, major surgery. Okay. I think that's probably the story we want to end on. So I will sure. move into my final question, which is, how is your health as of this recording? How are you feeling? Pretty good. Yeah, you know, pretty good. I was feeling a little bit stuffed up when we started. Not feeling that anyway anymore. Feeling great. Okay, great. And I think that'll be when we wrap up. Our next episode will cover Ari entering dialysis, Ari's first transplant, and the story of that. If you want to email us with questions or comments, kidneycast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at kidneycast. And we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash kidneycast. And any of those places are a great way to get in touch with us. And again, we would love to answer any comments or questions. I know we have lots of plans for future episodes, but we will integrate questions you have into this podcast. So thank you so much, Ari, and thank you to everyone who's listening. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.